Hello, everybody. I'm Jeff Hunt, and this is Human Capital, a Goalspan podcast. On Human Capital, I get to interview top business thought leaders to uncover the deeply human aspect of work. My guest today is Paul Whitkay, who founded the Alliance of Chief Executives back in 1996. Today, the Alliance has become the premier organization for chief executives in Silicon Valley and broader Northern California. The Alliance creates private, high-level, confidential environments for leaders to have strategic business conversations that they either wouldn't or couldn't uh, elsewhere. Paul has extensive executive experience with uh, the Fortune 250 space, senior executive experience, and he received his MBA from St. Mary's College, in, uh, which happens to be right in my backyard here in Moraga, California. And in addition, he is a graduate of the INSED Executive Management Program in Fontainebleau, France. And I know he happens to give back extensively to his community through various activities. Welcome, Paul. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me, Jeff. It's good to see you. Take us back uh, on your journey to the beginning of your career. I, I, I always like to start with this question about who or what inspired you to go into business and specifically into leadership? Well, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I've ever been asked that specifically because, uh, but when I think back, uh, my father was a management consultant and I grew up in uh, suburbs of Chicago and I helped him with his paperwork, but it uh, seemed really boring. And I actually remember I was, I, I took AP chemistry and AP math in, in high school. And when I was thinking about what to major in in college and I went to University of Illinois, one of my friends was going into business and I said, what, uh, what are you going into business for, four years? I mean, everybody knows you try to buy low, you sell high, the rest is profit. What are you going to learn on day two? You know, and it just seemed like relatively simple compared to science and math and those things. So I went and got a degree in chemical engineering. Uh, I wasn't a natural engineer. I can solve all the problems, but I wasn't really passionate about it. And, uh, but I went into business, frankly, uh, you know, as a uh, personal decision to have independence and be able to have the freedom to stay where I live, where I wanted to live. Sure. Well, one of the weird things is when I look back, my career was not linear in any way from engineering to sales, to strategy, to product management, to a whole bunch of things. And, and uh, I have a small company and large uh, but when I look back, every single thing I did enabled me to do what I get to do today. And probably the, the number one was when I started Whitkey Associates, the recruiting firm, I literally remember the first day in my office when I had to start and I realized, oh my God, I've got to make a phone call to start this thing. <laughs> right. I had to up and make cold calls uh, you know, that I had never made cold calls before. And, but the fact that I told everybody I'm starting this thing, frankly, my, it said, I can't fail. It's be too embarrassing. So I had to, I, I remember turning my head and looking at the phone and picking it up and making calls to both managers that we'd be hiring engineers and leaders and also CEOs. If, uh, and they didn't know, you know, I have a deeper voice, so they didn't know how young I was. And uh, somehow it worked because they were always looking for great talent. And, and so, uh, but that process of making cold calls to CEOs 
really helped me start to launch the Alliance and have that courage to be able to pick up the phone and talk to CEOs. And so bring us up to the Alliance. So what, what motivated you to start that organization? What problem we were, sol- were you solving? Tell us a little bit about that journey. We, uh, after working for Amico in Chicago and Dow Chemical in Michigan at the headquarters there, we moved out to the San Francisco Bay Area in 1977. And we really loved it here. And frankly, uh, the company I was working with, uh, about a year into it, uh, my boss calls me in for my performance review. And he says, Paul, you're doing great. We love what you're doing. Uh, so we're going to promote you to the next level. But you got to move to either Philadelphia or Houston. And I walked out of the office and I said, I think I just got promoted and fired the same sentence. <laughs> exactly. And so, frankly, once again, I didn't want to move to Houston. I love it here in the Bay Area. So, frankly, quite similar. I started thinking, okay, what am I going to do next? Sure. I started up the Alliance and uh, not really knowing what I'm doing other than the philosophy of really, I really highly value getting really intelligent, passionate people together in the same room and creating an environment where they can talk totally openly in Canada. So they have to be able to trust each other. Uh, And I also believe very much in the power of diversity cognitive diversity, but every, everything uh, that matters, whether it's industries, business models, skill sets that can, some people came up through legal or finance or marketing or operations, but also where you grew up, whether you grew up poor or rich and how you looked at world and uh, at the world and what, the, and what impact you might have on it and where your passion comes from. So frankly, that was the genesis for the Alliance. And frankly, I haven't been bored since. I, I'm privilege to deal with so many amazing people that are out there striving to change the world. And then just to conclude the conversation on the Alliance, where are you at today? How you have CEOs mostly in Northern California, but also elsewhere, right? So you're actually have CEOs around the world now, don't you? Yeah, it's been amazing past year with, uh, I mean, frankly, by design, I kept it be primarily Northern California. And we, we always had a few members that would fly in from LA, Seattle, even one from Portugal, because this is Silicon Valley. People come here to get funded, to collaborate and such. So we always had a few, but it was primarily Northern California. And it was by design because uh, I was tired of traveling 250,000 miles a year prior to launching the Alliance. And we had young kids and uh, the, the Alliance enabled me to do what I love doing, dealing with super intelligent people but I could live the carousy through their exploits and fly, from flying around the world to, to create new businesses and launch new markets and new products and be kind of the strategic provocateur for them. But I could go home at night and, and be with my family and coach my kids' teams and such. Now that my uh, kids are grown, uh, actually, I have been traveling more. And then when, and, uh, when COVID hit, and every CEO in the country was forced to go on a go on Zoom or go virtual on the same day, and all their calendars were wiped out. And then you layer on the most uncertainty any leaders had to deal with in their lifetime. All of a sudden, CEOs from around the country, uh, many of them were members that now run comp- in the, that used to run companies in the Bay Area and Northern California. Now they run companies in Detroit and Austin and Nashville and New York and. Other places, they started coming back because they could. And then all of a sudden, and I've always made friends with other people who share my passion, who have built uh, organizations for CEOs in Europe and in Canada and East Coast. So we started reaching out there, but 
But uh, so frankly, we now have CEOs that are, are video conferencing in and engaging in just as deep and, and confidential conversations from all over the world, from Sweden, from Lebanon, from Australia, from France. Uh, it's, it's, really, it's really exciting and engaging. And at the CEO level, it really doesn't matter where they're at. They're trying to make a difference. And talent is, uh, they find talent all around the country, all around the world. They have customers all around the world. So it really has, uh, you know, but the unique factor is that because we were founded in the 1990s, when the internet was just taking off, globalization was just happening. So our whole culture has been about, uh, about growth and innovation and leadership and strategy in a changing world. So frankly, the fact that our core values and core community include already include leaders from virtually every industry already it's a natural fit for for other ceos around the world to in building bridges to silicon valley and vice versa so it's been really fun and amazing this past year tell us a little bit about the structure so these groups get together are there 10 or 12 ceos in each group and then those are facilitated by a chair and they get together monthly just real quick Pragmatically, how does it work for those that don't know? There's lots of things we do. We are community CEOs, but frankly, the absolute core, it all starts with uh, creating a small private group where they're carefully curated to who's in that room so they can trust each other, they can respect each other, uh, and they can truly willing to engage and challenge each other. We have a unique methodology where, where they, they you know, we really encourage them to think as if they are the CEO and to be able to challenge all assumptions. But they meet for half a day uh, on uh, once a month. Uh, we do have several other groups that meet uh, on different schedules and such. It's not about, we're not a meetings organization, we're a strategy and leadership organization, but the cores is, is they do get together and the groups uh, range from 10 to 16 members or so. Uh, and nobody makes all the meetings, but, we average about uh, you know north of two thirds of the the meeting. So, so frankly, there's always more breadth and depth. But the cores, you know, if you if you invite the right people to join, they form deep trusted relationships. So they can talk about virtually anything in very unique environments. And then as a result of that, uh, it's still confidentiality. Do no you know all private. But frankly, a lot of other things happen as a result as a byproduct of knowing that somebody is reinventing the transportation space or doing autonomous flying vehicles or, or having a trouble with uh, tracking the right talent or things just happen because uh, uh, the, all these CEOs have deep connections and resources. And if they understand what somebody else is going through and they care about them, all of a sudden lots of other things happen. With the pandemic waning, I wanna talk about this for just a few minutes. Hopefully we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and it's not the freight train, but my question for you, because you've had so much exposure to different leaders and executives and, pr and probably had a lot of conversations about this, should employees return to the office? If so, when um, will CEOs ask employees to come back full-time? Is this going to be some sort of a hybrid situation? Do you have any predictions? What have you heard and, and what are your thoughts about this topic? Well, first of all, I've had lots of conversations about it and I, and I do think some of the the uh, talk in the media is kind of silly because frankly, every CEO I know, even, even before COVID hit, there was a number of, of organizations and, and leaders that already set up re, you know, uh, remote or 
virtual organizations. Was already going so there. Was, yeah, so it wasn't wasn't totally unique. Uh, they didn't do it for to prepare for a pandemic. They did it because it was effective for them to get the best talent uh, anywhere they may be and provide a flexible environment. So I think what what I realized very quickly in COVID is that first of all, I have no idea. You know, I was amazed at our own team that was able to take all these in person very human gatherings of, of leaders and put them on Zoom and, and virtual meetings overnight. And because we were forced to actually, we learned how to make it work very quickly. I'm very impressed with the, the CEOs and, and gathering and they, they had to, and they leaned in like never before. Attendance went up 25% uh, because they could and they didn't have to commute. But basically, you know, if it had ended after six weeks, six or eight weeks, I think we would have gone right back to the way we were and such, but habits, we now really learned how to do it. And as much as for many people, it sucks sitting on your butt for eight, 10 hours a day. Right. Okay, because you have to, but we've learned how to do it. So it, we've just gained a new tool, a lot of new tools, and basically everything. So many things we've been doing is just experimenting with how we work, how we live nowadays. So basically the best leaders I know are all thinking about, again, we have one more, one or many more tools to play with. So what, again, they focus on what's important. How do we serve our customers best? How do we get new customers? And when do we need to be in person? When, when do we, when is it more efficient or and possibly more effective virtually? Uh, and well, how do we take care of our employees as well? There's a human need to come together, but I, do, I am absolutely convinced we're gonna move into a more hybrid world where we can pick and choose how we communicate, how we collaborate, uh, and it, you know, frankly, I think it's uh, somewhat crazy for an organization to be mandated unless you're building things and, and then you have to be there to construct physical, physical entities or physical products. It's somewhat crazy to, to commute every day from nine to five and, and uh, get in your cars and, and have to be together all the time. Absence makes a hard grow finder. So whether you do it once a week or, or uh, just for lunch or something like that, frankly, I think we're going to really revel and enjoy being together more often because it's, you know, we certainly are going to do it when we first come back. But then, frankly, we get tired of each other a little bit uh, every day. Right. So, and Zoom is going to feel a whole lot better when it's uh, just, you know, once a day or once a week or three times a week, whatever. And it's more efficient. You know, if you get in your car and you can do it at uh, whatever time of day works for everybody. So it's just another tool. So we are moving into a hybrid world that makes sense for the customers, the employees, uh, and uh, and the and the executives for all these organizations. Yeah, it's kind of exciting, and COVID's really been a catalyst for so many changes. Many of those positive, including um, really adapting to remote work and doing it effectively. And you know, so. And I, and I gotta say, I'm blessed. I I I grew up in Chicago as a Chicago Cub fan. And when you mentioned a light at the end of the tunnel, Cub fans, you know, we waited over a hundred years for a, <laughs> That's a, right. a World Series championship, but we never lost sight. There was a light at the end of the tunnel. So we're, we're persistent optimists. And frankly, uh, CEOs and leaders really shouldn't be leading companies if, if they're not at least a long-term optimist. No if question. Building something, they have a vision of a better future that they're building. And so, frankly, we saw that in this uh, pandemic and the, and, the, and the work from home environment where uh, they, they still were able to, to, to communicate what that light was, what they're building, keep people focused on what really matters. 
And I love dealing with leaders because that's because uh, you know they don't whine for very long before they really start saying, okay, the the situation sucks, but what do we do about it? How do we fix things? And where are the opportunities? And so, frankly, it's been amazing to work with really great leaders during this time that are creating new ways to bring in value and and taking care of their employees. Yeah. Well, and uh, mentioning the Chicago Cubs, you know, the building an organization always takes longer and costs more than you think. It's just like a home improvement project, right? (laughs) So the the sooner you can accept that, then the better off you are. So just do it one step at a time and keep, keep moving forward. Exactly. So. Well, speaking of the pressure that organizations have been under because of COVID, talk for a minute about the leadership balance between trying, really demanding that objectives are achieved by employees versus trying to be compassionate with each person's unique home situation. So you have this trickle-down effect, and in some companies, the financial pressure has become severe. And so how can they sort of balance this? That's a good question. Uh, I do think during crises, leadership matters more than more than ever. Uh, and, and the best leaders really thrive and step up and actually enjoy it. It's one of the few times where employee, virtually all employees actually listen to their leaders during crises. They may tune them out when everything's going well, you know, but when times are tough, whether it's for self-preservation to understand whether they're gonna have a job or not, or to hopefully if they build a, a strong culture that is towards serving their customers and, and taking care of themselves and collaborating. Frankly, this is when it really pays off where again, they know what's important and they start, you know, and frankly, you know, leaders have, uh, have different perceptions of what their priorities be. And some, some leaders think, boy, get the best talent, take care of them and they'll take care of their customers. Yes. Other ones may focus on customers first and knowing you have to have great, great talent and, and people to take care of them. It's almost a chicken and the egg as to which you prioritize. But these are times when leaders really focus on what's most important. And it's actually transparent to the employees by their actions as much as, you know, as much as their words as to what really is important. They will see it. You know, if, if, you know, certainly if the economics require it, uh, you know, financial cuts are often necessary, but they'll see how it's done and why it's done. And, it, you know, and, uh, and they'll understand if it's done right. But it's, but again, they, you know, are they, are they making decisions based on what's the best interest of the shareholders or what's the best interest of the customers, best interest of the employees or the communities? Or they make and are they making uh, best decisions in short-term interest of just survival, or long-term of retain finding ways to creatively retain all the talent that's necessary, as well as taking their customers that will be there uh, when the pandemic's over. And and those who have built strong relationships with their customers and strong trusted relationships with employees, uh, actually, this is when it pays off as well. But you see what they what they focus on and what's most important to them when there's a crisis. Yes, great point. So I'm sure you've seen this, but there there are a lot of times that executives delay making difficult decisions. Once again, COVID's kind of been a catalyst for forcing some of those decisions forward. But in a normal environment, what are some of the reasons that you believe 
executives delay making difficult decisions like pulling out of an unsuccessful endeavor or letting an underperforming employee go, perhaps even closing an unprofitable division. You know, what are some of the reasons and, and what can they do to improve in this area? Because I've seen this a lot too in my consulting work over the past 15 years. Well, I think the first answer is, believe it or not, CEOs are actually human beings like the rest of us. Okay, I mean, they're human beings and uh, we don't you know, like to make mistakes or admit them anymore. I mean, we, uh, than, than anyone else does, we make decisions and, uh, and they don't all work out. Whether it's they're hiring the right people and that don't work out or invest in making acquisitions or starting new products. I mean, frankly, particularly here in Silicon Valley, more things fail than succeed. Right. Uh, and the best leaders learn pretty quickly to, to move quickly. As far as talent goes, there's probably no better example of that than Reed Hastings of Netflix. Uh, he, he's written a number of books. The latest one is, uh, is the No Rules uh, you know, company. And, and, very, and he's very clear about, uh, about his, the philosophy. So frankly, if you don't want that type of culture, don't join, but they get the very best. But he exemplifies making decisions on on uh, constantly reevaluating your own assumptions and the decisions you've made and not looking at sunk costs or sunk times of facing reality, facing re reality today, uh, and, and oftentimes reviewing the, th the things that matter and saying, uh, say, if, you know, if I had to make a decision today, what would I do? Forgetting about what I've done in the past, would I be doing this product? Would I, be hire would I hire this person again that's working here? Really good question. Okay, and if the answer is no, then you have to wonder, well, okay, what do I do about that? Uh, do I just live with it because I'm embarrassed to admit it? Uh, or do I free that per person up or free up the time and investment from a product that ultimately I don't believe in anymore? Or do we redesign or tweak it? It's facing brutal reality and saying, okay, what, you know, forget about the past. What do we do now? The resources we have, What's it going to take to make this successful? Can we make this probability of success and make a conscious decision to reinvest that, that day or that week, uh, you know, that time period on, on reinvesting or cutting bait and moving on to, so that you can focus on the things that do matter. Sure. And, and sometimes I think it's a false paradox for leaders because they have this sense they're being compassionate by letting the person stay that's underperforming, but the greater compassion is actually letting them go or moving them to a different position where they can shine. Right. And yeah. done right. I totally agree with you. That also could be a rationalization for, for having made a mistake and not feeling too bad about having to cut someone, but the best ones do recognize it was their mistake, but they can't, uh, can't let the organization suffer as a result because their ultimate duty is to the long-term sustainable success of the organization. And allowing whether it's people or products or business units or anything else to suck time. And sometimes it's firing customers. It might be your first customer is really no longer supportive or productive profitable. or profitable or something right. really supporting the long-term success of the company. And sometimes it's firing a customer. You know, it's, uh, it's hard to do. Uh, okay. I have one more question for you and then we'll jump into some lightning round questions. Uh, we were chatting before we started about Jim Collins, who we both love, but I, he, he taught us that the single charismatic leader is really much less effective in the long run 
than a leadership culture that's not dependent on the personality of a single leader. And so my question for you is, how can organizations reduce dependency on any one leader for success? Well, first of all, I, uh, I am a big fan of Jim Collins and uh, we just had an event with him yesterday. So I'm very energizing and uh, uh, he's a great business and leadership thinker. So, but first thing I'd say is it's, it's not about charisma. Okay, I, you know, it's not, there are very, very successful, great charismatic leaders and there are absolutely great leaders who have, haven't an ounce of charisma. <laughs> so charisma is not good or bad. It's just a somewhat, uh, you know, a personality trait. It's so helpful to hear you say that, Paul, because so many people do not realize that. They think that great leadership is only the person who is highly charismatic. Yeah, I think so. sometimes you conflate charisma with the egomaniacs who it is all about because they may be louder and, and more boastful and, and more about them. Uh, that's not necessarily equivalent to charisma. There can be very quiet charisma. I've, I've had, a, I've worked with leaders where you can sense when they've entered the room, even though you don't hear or see them, you're there behind you, but you can just sense their energy level and the room has just changed and such that, and they can be very, very quiet leaders, but people listen when they talk. Filled with wisdom. Yeah. So it's not about, uh, but it's not about charisma. Uh, it is in level five leadership in Jim Collins's words to say is really about uh, once you've had the individual competency and, and you build team competency and you've learned how to manage people and you're able to lead, lead an organization, uh, the, the level five are really it's, it's the, the humble leaders. And it's, again, it's, you can be loud, humble. Okay, but it's all about the organization's success, and it's not about their personal success. I, I you know, I think uh, I had to, had a talk earlier today with a very successful CEO, just had a very successful exit, and uh, you know, and she was talking about you know how they don't teach leadership in, in business school and such. And as we were thinking about it, I think one of the uh, one of the uh, industries that actually does teach individual leadership. Uh, on the kind of the Jim Collins fashion is football. Quarterbacks are, you know, the great quarterbacks are taught pretty early on that the, if they're going to be a great quarterback and lead a team, they give when a, a play or something, if they, they get a, a, a successful, you know, a play or score a touchdown or win a game, they give all the credit to their offensive line for blocking. They give the credit to the defense. Uh, they give credit to everybody else. And when there's an interception or they lose a game, they take all the accountability for mm. the loss themselves. What a good great, analogy. Great leadership lesson. And, and that's really what Jim Collins is talking about as far as level five leadership, where their focus is, is on the organization. And then as far as building long-term successful organizations, yes, the best ones are building a culture of leadership where they're building uh, both succession where everybody on their team is understands the vision, mission, purpose, the why of their organizations is, is understands the strategy and whether they totally agree, they have a culture where they can disagree about, about strategies and actions and such, but then, uh, and then ultimately make a decision, align around it and execute whether they agree with it or not, they now execute once the decisions been made and build an organization that, that functions like that. Uh, and, 
and, and frankly, just going back to another industry, but it, the uh, our military uh, leaders, the, some of the best leadership organizations are the military academies and building the the uh, servant leadership of and, and the mission-based leaders where they may not know exactly what actions, how the battlefield is going to, uh, to play out. It's all going to change as soon as uh, the battle starts. But everybody on that field understands what the overall mission is. And they've created a culture where they can collaborate as quickly in real time to reconfigure strategy to find creative ways to still accomplish their mission. And so uh, I think I think that's uh, Jim Collins might agree with me. I would never, <laughs> never presume to uh, uh, to, uh, to tell Jim Collins anything about leadership. But uh, uh, but I think those are kind of examples of what you're talking about. Yeah, very well stated. Very, very well stated. So, okay, we're going to jump into some lightning round questions. You haven't heard any of these in advance, and I just wanted you to give me the quick top of mind answers that come to you. How about that? Well, with quick, you mean one second or do I have yeah. 10 seconds to think? You get, uh, you get 15 seconds per. Oh. How's that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, some of them are pretty easy. Like this first one, what are you most grateful for? My family, my life. Uh, I, I, I love my family and I'm so grateful, particularly during COVID. I, if, first of all, the technology wasn't there to engage. I have no, I'd be going crazy, but I've been able to engage with so many amazing leaders, probably three times more than I was before because it's, because virtual is more efficient. It may not be as much fun, but it's more efficient. And to see how people are reacting in real human and inspiring ways, I, I am so grateful just to be able to hang around these people. It's great. Yeah, the pandemic would have been a different ball game 20, 25 years ago, wouldn't it have been? Yep. And my family has come together and support each other. And it's just been, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a time of, of, of global experimentation and a global reevaluation of what life, what matters to us uh, and how we, we, how we want to live our lives. Very well stated. Okay, what is a what is a difficult leadership lesson that you've learned over your career? Oh, I think I'm still learning it. Uh, God, I the the pace of of change is accelerating so fast. The gap between what I think I know and have learned is getting bigger and bigger against what I'd like to know or should know to be to, to really have the impact that we might have as human beings. Uh, so frankly, I don't know how to learn fast enough, and uh, but I do like, you know, still believe in surrounding myself with people smarter than myself who have as many different perspectives and skill sets as possible to learn from them. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, thinking in that, uh, in that gap of, of, of understanding versus the potential for what's happening, you know, that, uh, uh, that is possible out there. It's a journey, not a destination, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, for sure. But but being a Cub fan, I've learned not to be depressed about that at all. <laughs> I've learned to be inspired and enjoy that journey. We always had fun as Cub fans, even though we lost. Right. No question. Uh, who is one person you would interview if you could, whether they're living or not? Oh, boy. Nelson Mandela. Oh, he would be good, huh? Steve Jobs. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? 
I'm going to screw up the uh, the lines, but basically, if you can understand and differentiate between what you can control and what you what you can't control, and you know, and basically accept accept those things that uh, are outside your control and focus on the things that you can and uh, and just keep moving forward uh, and accept just ex accept accept the reality and and uh, and have a, a it, you called it a light at the end of the tunnel but never never lose that light and, and uh, uh, do things you enjoy doing and hang and be and do it find people you enjoy doing it with as well. Great advice for all of us, Paul, and a great note to end on. So I just want to thank you for coming on the show today. It's been an insightful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. So, well, thank you so much. I, I remember meeting you the first time and the passion you showed for your work. And uh, it's a pleasure knowing you over the years. So congratulations to you. Thanks so much, Paul. Take care. Thanks for listening to the show this week. We release a new episode of Human Capital on the first and third Tuesday of each month. I would really like to know what you thought of this episode. Send your comments to humancapital at goalspan.com. Human Capital is produced by Goalspan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please share this podcast with your colleagues, team, or friends. Thanks for being human, kind.